What is going on in Utah? Trades, a new coach, plus Auburn men's basketball head coach Bruce Pearl on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, equal housing lender. Been a while since we talked, and full disclosure, I have to wait for these things to be official, and so here it comes from you, okay? I got a lot of thoughts on everything that's happened. Give them to you right now, but I have to start with one of the greatest moments in off-season history, I wouldn't say franchise history, but in television history, that's for sure. The performance by Brian Windhorse on first take. Why would the Jazz do that? Not only is it one that he delivered amongst the greats, it was watching someone be a performance artist on national television. And I get it. First take does this a lot. Mixes information with entertainment for better, for worse, but Windhorse transforming himself into the deal zone, speaking in transaction tongues, he was going for it. A very strange trade. And when I think about the Rudy Gobert trade and what happened Friday, I kind of think about that moment. I think about Brian Windhorst. And so you're going, well, why do you care about Royce O'Neal? Why does that matter? Because that thing loomed over the entire day ominously, okay? He says that in the morning, and not that I watch First Take, but you see the clips online, and he's getting memed. He's working his fingers. He's going all over the place. But what happened next? A trade. What is happening in Utah? What is going on? I guess he had the goods. I guess he knew what he was talking about. Is this false praise? I don't think so for Windhorse, what he's doing. Because if you listen to the Hoop Collective, he surrounds himself with people who are very informed on the NBA, and Windhorse himself is plugged in on every team in the league, not just the Utah Jazz. Like, he's everywhere. And those guys heard the rumors. They were talking about them on that podcast. But it culminated, right? It wasn't just great television. It became something after that. Okay, he is a soothsayer. If they allow me ever again on that Jazz set to do jazz television. I'm going to try to do a Windhorse impression, right? He is the best at this, at the game. And he's awesome. I thought it was spellbinding. I watched it before this podcast just to get ready, okay? He was in the deal zone. But when the trade happened, where were you? What were you thinking? What happens next? I'm thinking it's the next chapter in jazz basketball history. I think Tim McMahon coined that ESPN 700 where he does his hits every week, drive, Spence Checkets, but he said it on this podcast as well. Could be at the nexus of jazz basketball history because of what happened. And the trade is that. Because you see Rudy Gobert go out the door, this team is transformed. This is completely different from last year's squad. From the squads that you've seen make the playoffs. Last six seasons have been built on the back of that Fabulous French defender. And what they got for him was a hole from Minnesota that lends to this team not being better than they were yesterday when they had Rudy, which is fine, but it gives them flexibility. It gives them maybe some versatility. And it gives them four first-round picks 
and rotation players to boot. Jared Vanderbilt, Patrick Beverly, Malik Beasley, Leandro Bomaro, Walker Kessler, all coming in the trade from Minnesota. And all their contracts can be gone and off the books next season. They're $11 million below the tax. Rudy signed that Supermax with his squad. Now they have opportunities to make even more deals, right? I mean, on draft night, everybody was expecting Danny Ainge. What is he going to do? Oh, it's classic Ainge day. Almost Ainge. Well, if you wait a little bit, wait to that Friday, almost Ainge, he almost took an entire team for Rudy Gobert in this transaction. This is a coup. Whether it's rebuilding, whether it's for contention, the next moves are going to be pretty instructive in the direction that they're going. They got more flexible contract-wise. They got first-round picks. Watching the draft, Jazz didn't have a pick. You know, we weren't targeting in on somebody that they could select that day. And that's because they made go-for-it moves for Mike Conley, signing Boyan Bogdanovich. They were go-for-a-team. Where are they now? I don't think you know the direction next until that next move because they have work to do. They need a starting center. They need to figure out two starters. Is it one of the new guys that they acquired from Minnesota who are pretty good players? They're not Rudy, but they're pretty good. But who's going to fill his shoes? Who's going to be the guy? And maybe they lost three of their best defenders because Daniel House towards the end of the season and in the playoffs, they're relying on him. Somebody that signed a 10-day and was a COVID hardship player earlier in the year. But this is a new chapter in jazz basketball history. Not to go back a page to what happened, but I think Royce and Rudy deserve their own shout-outs. Not to take away from anything from Daniel House, who is a dog. Trent Forrest, who is going to be in the league for a while. Wancho Bo Cruz, who is a star in hustle, played playoff minutes for this team. Eric Paschal, who stepped up for the squad when Rudy Gay was down in November. Not to take anything away from those guys. But Rudy and Royce mean something different. And Royce, what a hit. Seriously. The Baylor connection with Dennis Lindsay, development success, to think that a guy who comes in a mini-draft workout, right, one of those things that's just a press release that some beat writer posts on Twitter, random names you don't know. They don't add context to it. It's just names to you. Well, one of those names became a starter in the NBA, became somebody that signed a contract extension, is going to play on Brooklyn, a 3-and-D wing that played some of the best basketball that I've ever seen in 2021 for him, where he's guarding Giannis, he's guarding Luka back-to-back games and giving them troubles. He is a success story for this team and one that you combine with Rudy Gobert is a success story. It's about time we talked about him on the pod because he deserves a special spot in your heart. Remembering that day when he's traded and what he did for the franchise, you deserve to remember him fondly. And both of those players, when they come back, I hope Jazz fans give them a huge ovation because they deserve it. Royce for being Quinn's do-everything guy. If they need a rebound, Royce get that rebound. They asked him to do so much. Sometimes too much. But that's a burden of being on a really good team. Rudy deserves all the accolades because I remember watching him way early on in his career. This had to have been 13 or 14. Way early. 
and he is a beanpole. He isn't what he is today, where he looks sculpted, where he is exactly where his body needs to be in the NBA. He looked like Chet Holmgren without the handle and all the skills that Chet has. If I'm seeing him out of context one game, I didn't watch the Jazz all year, I'm watching him battle Jeremy Grant, and he's getting pushed around by Philadelphia. I think they had Jaleel Okafor on the team as well. Whatever. He's getting pushed around. And I'm taking that out of context, and at that time, I'm like, I don't know if this guy has it. I don't know if this is a guy that you want to build a a team around. I didn't even think that he was a piece. Well, that's the type of stuff that fueled him. Doubters fueled him. He wears 27 on his chest for that very reason. And for him to go from that one game out of context, I don't even remember the year, but I'm taking one game out of context and ascribing it to him for his entire career. That's a hot take culture that we live in. And i known to throw out a couple scalders. But for him to do that and then become what he became, three-time defensive player of the year, it's astounding. It really is. Think about it. Ever since he became a rotation player for the team, led the squad in win shares, just minus one year, that's how good he was. He carried a team on defensive end where they built a defensive identity around him. 2017 to 2019, they were third defensive rating. They were second and second again. And then they go the entire opposite way, retool the team, making an offensive one, and he still keeps them in the top 10. Last season, for as terrible as the defense looked at the end of the season, they were number nine. That is all Rudy Gobert. You see it in the on-off numbers. He is a analytic darling, and that's probably why he's so controversial, so polarizing. But I think that lends to his greatness. Good players are hated. Whatever you think about him, he made people care, in positive, in negative. He's the best defensive player that I've ever seen. He's the best jazz player that I have seen at the peak of their powers, right? I caught John and Carl at the end, so I didn't really necessarily cogently know how good they were. They are one and two. But he is the best jazz player in a jazz uniform that I've seen and the privilege of watching day in, day out. And he's going to help Minnesota jump a tier. Now they get the spotlight. They get the vitriol. Something he noticed. Something that motivated him. And they get the NBA nerd praise. You have to have a take on Rudy Gobert, 2022. You just have to. It's a byproduct of watching basketball. And that's what I loved about him. Like He made you feel. And whether it was slapping a cuff off the scorer's table, taking a selfie in the back after he gets ejected, the COVID situation where he's touching mics, owning up to it with Taylor Rooks, he knew his faults. He realized his faults. He tried to improve himself. It's the reason why he got better defending the perimeter every single year. That time when he got spun like a top by Steph, works on it, and then he has that stand against Luka in the playoffs this year. Or my favorite game of a regular season contest that I've ever seen him play was against Dallas that 2020 year before COVID. And he gets... DeLon right on the perimeter, and DeLon's driving, thinks he has him beat because it's late in the game, and they need a bucket, and Rudy goes back, 
and swats him away. That is the best defensive possession I've ever seen him play. And it's one of a gazillion because he's generational. And he is the best defensive player in jazz history. He deserves an ovation. He deserves his jersey retired. Once he's done with the game, he deserves everything when he comes back. And I'm looking forward to that day because he's going to join a Minnesota team. He's going to link up with a squad that is going to be very good. It's going to be because of him, and he deserves that. As for Utah, turn the page. They're changing a core that couldn't get over the hump. Now, how long before they're back up it? Now, let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. It's like an old school radio break, but I wanted to hit on Will Hardy as well. Double intro, because he got introduced as the jazz head coach, and I was able to talk to him, and everybody's talking about it, video coordinator with Spurs, they're taking it from that angle, and then on. But I want to look at it from a different spot, because how many coaches in the NBA go to a college that they were named? Williams Will, you know? Mike Brown didn't go to the Ivy League, played at Mesa. No nursing school for Nick. This is different. And Williams is a unique place because I don't think many people around here know exactly what that's all about. It's kind of like Westminster. But put it in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts, put it with some granola people, and that's who you're talking about. Williams has a mascot that is called an Eve. It's after the person that they were founded by. Eve from Williams, I think is his name. But it's a purple cow. And the student body voted on it to be a purple cow. It's a reference to this poem that they had that everybody liked in the middle of the 20th century. This is, these are the things that people in that part of the world were all about. This is the color. This is the granola type of person that you're thinking. Okay, sleepy hollow type stuff. The poem is as is. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. Gillette Burgess, 1895. That's what Williams is all about. I think this t- part of his life is very under-discussed in the development of him as a basketball player, as a coach, as a basketball mind. Because he comes from R- Richmond, Virginia. A little bit of the South influence. He goes to Mass for college. And there's this phenomenal story in the Washington Post by John Feinstein, brilliant author. And he went to Salem for the Final Four for Division III basketball. That's where Williams is. They're in the Division III. And it's explaining what goes into Salem, the Final Four, at that level. And it's pretty well understood that many of these players are really good. Like, they could have played at lower Division I, right? Oakland, Bradley, Miami of Ohio, all those small schools that you hear about in March Madness that wreck your tournament, wreck your bracket, they could have gone there. 
But these players, they choose to play at these schools because they want to win. They have a different thing in their mentality. They don't want to just go to the NCAA tournament, get cannon fodder for a one seed for Duke. Because more than likely, you're not going to win. There are only so many George Masons that go on a run to the Final Four. You are not going to win a tournament at those small schools. It's Duke. It's Kentucky. It's the big ones. Kansas. So, that's a mentality difference at the small level. Will Hardy is at this tournament that John Feinstein's at in 2010. And mind you, you know, like, these guys love hoops, and some of them stuck with it. One of his teammates is, like, a head of a marketing department in a basketball agency. They're pretty high up there. Will Hardy's at that final in Salem in 2010. His team loses to Wisconsin Stevens Point. In the storytelling by Feinstein, you could tell how much these guys care about losing because this is the last basketball game that they're going to play. What are you going to do after college to stay attached to the game? What can you do? Because this is it. You're not going to be a pro, probably. There are only so many success stories. Duncan Robinson being one of them came out of Williams, went to Michigan, but then got his pro chance. So after the final, after the loss, which I foolishly reminded him of on press conference day, he wasn't happy about that, but showed a little bit of a color about him, how he was able to be self-deprecating about it. Still, after that, after 2010, loses in the final, what are you going to do next? Well, he's applying for jobs, finance, he has an English degree. What's next after college? And he had this mentor, a former Williams coach by the name of Kurt Tong. And Kurt, go back and forth, this is a guy that loves hoops, basketball head. Kurt remembers one thing about his past that, well, I guess about his present at the time, he's friends with Greg Popovich. And Pop was looking for an intern for the Spurs organization. And Kurt brings this up to Will Hardy. And Will says, wait a minute. Where were you? Why didn't you tell me about this connection earlier? Would have taken advantage of it. But that's how he gets in the door. And on one of the first days that he's an intern in the front office with the team, it wasn't necessarily with the players just yet, he meets an assistant general manager by the name of Dennis Lindsay. Dennis, Popovich, R.C. Buford, all the names, all the lineage, land him to that job today. Spurs, Jazz, Celtics, all that in his bag now. We'll see what he does with it this summer league, this October. But he has a resume that pops, and it all started at Williams. Williams will. Five stars. Nice reviews. That's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Next one's going to be in Vegas, going down Friday after Salt Lake Summer League. I want to do a Summer League podcast then because, yes, I am absolutely with you in overreacting to Summer League. I don't love the, hey, you have to not watch and be emotional about this. If you aren't arguing about your 15th man on the roster right now, somebody online, you aren't doing Summer League right. That's what this is for. This is for those conversations. And this is for the dopamine rush that I need to get me to October when the regular season starts. But that's what Summer League's about. Overreactions, underreactions, 
enjoying the basketball. I can't wait to see it in Vegas. First day of Salt Lake Summer League was buzzing and electric because of Chet. Those takes that were going crazy, calling him Dirk, yeah, that's exactly what I want to see coming out of Summer League. Embrace it. But I'm going to do a Summer League pod down there, hit you back, get to talk to a lot of people about Will Hardy. Already caught up with somebody in the NBA who used to work in a front office. Home run hire. They love it. But you get to talk to everybody down there in Vegas. And I'll be following the team. Check them out. I hope Walker Kessler will be there. Not sure if he will. Brian Bailey last night at Salt Lake Summer League said, potentially, we'll see. Who knows? But what I do know is I spoke to Bruce Pearl, his head men's basketball coach at Auburn. Bruce talked about Walker, talked about Jabari. Oh, just the third pick in the NBA draft this season. And here's a funny connection. He recruited Quinn Snyder when he was coaching at Stanford. So a wealth of basketball from Bruce Pearl. And without further ado, enjoy it. Here's Bruce Pearl on Round Ball Roundup. I text Walker as soon as I saw the trade to Utah. I said, "Hey Walker, you're already set. You know, you set a record for block shots. I think you've set a record for three NBA teams in six days. I mean, that's impressive." I said, "Man, Memphis drafted you. Obviously, it was Minnesota's pick, but you got to get a Memphis jersey. You got to get a Minnesota jersey, and now you're going to get a Utah jer- jersey. I, I I just hope that this is it for him. But now I, I I told him I said, "Look, Walker, this is just business, you know, because he was excited about." going to Minnesota. And, and, and I really do think Minnesota was one of the teams that liked him a lot and maybe even liked him at 19. Um, and uh, so I think he kind of, my guess is he had put that Jersey on, he put that hat on and that's where he was going to be. Uh, his grandfather played uh, up at Minnesota uh, for the golden Gophers back in the day. Uh, but if he had to go someplace else to another great city and another great community, uh, I think he's going to actually even like Utah even better. Well, and you know it from 2019 being in the tournament down here. What was your experience like at Vivint Arena? Oh man, it's I. It was such a pretty place. I mean, uh, you know, I love the outdoors. That's I just I'm outside all the time working in my yard, and so I'm I'm big on the weather and the sunshine and the and the change in seasons and things like that. You know, and to have those mountains in the background and, and have the, the topography of that Salt Lake City area. And obviously the friendliness uh, of the people. God is alive and well and present in people's lives. No, man, he's going to a great place. And, and uh, I think uh, he will embrace it. He will absolutely. And, and, and I think people in Utah will embrace him as well. What type of player was he during the recruiting process? Went to North Carolina, doesn't work out there, goes to Auburn to where he leaves now trying to make that next step in the NBA? Well, we had recruited Walker out of high school. He grew up about an hour and a half from here. His family had a lake home uh, about an hour from Auburn, uh, but his entire family went to Georgia. So he was the bulldog through and through. Um, But our program was a little bit farther ahead uh, at the time of his recruitment. Uh, I saw him as a sometime around his 10th grade. And I met his dad. Uh, they came to camp 
And, you know, he was 6'10 then, but he ran like he was 6'5. He was a terrific athlete. And I walked over to his dad in the gym. I was like, oh, here he comes, this fast-talking, slick-talking guy from the East that's going to offer my kid a scholarship before he's ready. And he said, before you say another word, don't offer him a scholarship, Ned. He's not ready. I said, okay, Mr. Kessler, if you don't want me to be the first one to offer him a scholarship, that's fine. But trust me, next week when everybody else sees him, your phone's going to be ringing off the hook. So I recognized Walker from the jump as uh, someone that was going to be a, a great, great prospect, a great rim protector, a really good perimeter big man. And uh, he lived up to all, all those expectations. He was going to come to Auburn out of high school. His last visit was to North Carolina. He fell in love with Carolina, called me, broke my heart. Uh, but that's okay. We left it the right way. I mean, pretty tough to beat North Carolina in recruiting. Um, he came back the following year. He went to a place that was going to utilize him, uh, and we did, and he took full advantage of the opportunity here. How did you manage that? Because you have t one of the best front lines in all of college basketball with Jabari and Walker Kessler out there. How do you manage those guys, especially in 2022, when the game keeps on expanding further and further? Oh, well, a couple of things. First of all, we had the best front line in college basketball last year with Jabari Smith and Walker Kessler. And those kids wanted to play together and they were great. They were great together. Um, they were both bigs that could stretch the floor. Uh, they, they, they could guard multiple positions. All they cared about was winning. They were two of my hardest workers, their attitudes, accepting coaching. They were leaders. They were great teammates. They improved. They trained like pros. They, they, re, they, they, they took their recovery seriously. I mean, and they're both from Atlanta. Um, and um, it was easy. It was, it was easy uh, uh, to play. They knew each other a little bit in high school. They had competed against each other. They're great kids from great families. You don't see that all the time. Um, but they both, and, and those young men both know how blessed they are to have the kind of family support that they both have. And they're both smart enough to keep the right people around them uh, at the AAU level and personal trainers. And man, yeah, I'm just telling you, they're both great kids. How spirited were those practices between those two? <laughs> they were spirited. I mean, they were, uh, there's no question. Jabari probably talked a little bit more smack than Walker, but block Walker probably blocked a few more shots than Jabari. Um, they were great teammates. And, and, and again, uh, they both cared about winning and they took winning seriously. Uh, they wanted to win at every contest. They wanted to win at uh, off the floor as well. Uh, and that is going to be as much as their physical abilities. It's going to be just as challenging replacing that aspect of, of having them every day in practice. What type of defender is he clearly number one block percentage in all of co college basketball for Walker? Uh, how is he as a rim protector and how can it translate to this level? Well, he is the best player that I've ever had in the air. Um, and see, when I talk about playing basketball in the air, you know, you could fall out of a plane and the fall usually doesn't kill you. It's the sudden drop. It's that landing that kills you. Same thing with injury. Walker's able to get in the air. He's able to stay in the air. And sometimes I have no idea where he's going to put those puppies down and land. And a lot of times guys won't leave their feet because they're afraid of the landing. Walker's not afraid of the landing. He puts his body in peril. And then he's able to go up there and make plays defensively at the rim. 
He's not seven one. He's seven one a little bit. And sometimes that fraction of an inch is all it takes to go ahead and block a shot versus changing a shot. And then he goes and gets his own because he's got that a pretty quick second bounce off the floor. And uh, offensively, if you throw it up there to him at the rim, which obviously is a big part of the game, throw it down, throw it up, he'll catch it and he'll finish it. And that's how he was able to impact the game with his size. Even watching the high school clips, he only took 53s in college, but he had an expanded game in high school, at least looking at, at some of the things on YouTube. Is that something that he could provide or something that he showed in practice? Well, he's got a rip game. He can put the ball down the floor. He's got a pretty good Euro step. He can change directions. He's a really good finisher. Um, he can finish with either hand. He can jump off either leg. So those are really important. And look, the fact that he shot it 50 times for me um, means that I wanted him to shoot those shots. And I thought most of them were going in. He did not shoot a great percentage. But the first thing you got to do is take them. And then the next thing you got to do is make them. Al Horford did not make a three ball in college. Jabari Smith is way ahead of Al Horford. You know, it was funny. I said that on an interview one time and the guy from uh, Vanderbilt grad works for Fox. He's talking all kind of smack with Draymond Green right now. What's his name? He's a national guy. Oh, uh, Skip. You're talking about Skip. Yeah, Skip. See, I can remember Quinn Snyder's high school coach, Ed Peppel, and his mom <laughs> and dad, Gary and Tonette Snyder, who I recruited, recruited way back in the day when I was at Stanford, but I couldn't remember Skip's name. But I said that in some interview. Did I just tell you that Jabbar, that uh, Walker Kessler was better? No, he no, did not. I didn't. No, he said did I not. said that. No, I didn't. I said that Al Horford never made a three in college, and Jabari shot 50. Uh, you know, Walker shot 50 of them. Anyways, uh, he's going to be a good shooter. Got a great ball flight. Um, and I'm telling you, he's going to be a really, really effective stretch five. What has been the program success for you at Auburn as this team has developed six picks, I think, since 2019? What's been working so well? I mean, I mean, just our culture, our campus, our university, my coaching staff. I've got a phenomenal coaching staff. Ira Bowman, Stephen Pearl, Wes Flanagan, Mike Burgermaster, uh, Marquise Daniels uh, is my director of player development, Chad Pruitt. Uh, I've got a phenomenal staff, and those guys work those players out. And, um, you know, Chumo Kiki was a top 50 player. He went ninth, 16, I think, to Orlando. Isaac Cora was a top 50 player. Neither one of those guys at McDonald's All-Americans went five to Cleveland. And as a rookie, played more minutes than any rookie did that year. Um, JT Thor, Sharif Cooper, one and duns. Um, and then this year, uh, you know, Jabari Smith was a top 10 high school player, maybe top five at some point. But he was never really a top three until he got to Auburn, played, and became, you know, really preseason. Everybody thought Orlando was going to take him. That's kind of a, that's how much he improved. And then Walker, obviously, was not somebody that was really on a lot of draft boards early, but everybody then got a chance to see what he did. It's the culture. It's the humbleness. It's the hungerness. It's God in their life. Um, it's it's just, um, it just it's kind of what we do. It's just what we've been able to do with great, really good kids. Really good coaching staff, really hard workers, um, guys that are humbled, blessed, and, and and we train. Did you expect these two to be some guys that could be picked in the first round? I knew they would both be. I, you know, Jabari was probably ranked higher than Walker. Yeah. I absolutely knew Walker was going to be a first-round pick. I didn't know he could do it in one year. I mean, how, how do you go from eight or nine minutes a game at Carolina, you know, to doing what he's doing here? Now, look, at Carolina, he got better at Carolina. 
North Carolina coaching staff did a great job with Walker. Walker improved. And um, and I just gave him the opportunity and continued that, you know, continue that job. Listen, Walker can guard one through five. That's what's crazy about him. Like he could switch out in a point guard. He could stay up on him and he can retreat and get him at the rim. Uh, and that's I remember Walker being concerned that if he came to Auburn, we would play too fast and that I'd make him impact ball screens and trap every now and then, and we'd switch, and all of a sudden you get a bad mess up. And I said, let me tell you something, Walker. Our guards would rather play each other one-on-one than play you. You don't want to play him one-on-one because he'll stay up on you in the perimeter. He'll block everything you shoot in the three-point line. And then when you go by him, he'll catch you at the rim. It's a wonderful problem to have. Well, and you know this from watching the game. Blocks, that's a stat everybody sees, but deterring people from even attacking the rim. that That's not something that's in the box score, but it affects the game nonetheless. It does. It absolutely does. And uh, and then he's over, he's quick enough to go get his own, um, and he'll rebound his position. Um, and, 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 he, and, he, and, he, and he just wants to get better. You know, Walker, Walker wants to please. He will do what his coach asks him to do. Um, and um, when he gets to the point where he f- is able to make the three ball at a better percentage, which that's going to happen. It's going to happen at some point early in his career. Could happen this year, might be next year. Uh, man, I'll tell you what, that also uh, will make everything that Utah does offensively even better. Let's let you go on this. What's something that people don't know about Walker Kessler? He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. Loves to laugh. Got a little bit of trickster in him. Um, you know, he's just, uh, he's grateful. He's humble. He was raised right. Um, got unbelievable support from his family. Uh, but he's he's got great trainers, great people in his life. Um, he's got a good relationship with the Lord and wants to get closer. And so you're getting, you're getting an absolute all-star man. Um, and a great, great prospect. Amen to the homily. Thank you so much to Bruce Pearl, coach of the Auburn Tigers men's basketball program. Coach, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be with you, JB.